We've been in a series dissecting in the Old Testament what's known as the major prophets. It's, it's five books in the Bible that are kind of known as the major prophets. And Pastor Chris has done a great job of kind of breaking down like the difference in the major prophets and the minor prophets. And are you ready for it? The major prophets just were more long-winded. It's not that what they said was more important. They just couldn't say it as quickly as the minor prophets, okay? So we've been walking through the five major prophets in the Old Testament, looking at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. This morning, we're gonna dive into Ezekiel, and then we're gonna finish off next week with Daniel, and, and the, the simple theme that you've probably heard echoed time and time again throughout this series is that God does not do distance. God does not do distance. There's this rhythm that seems to be very clear throughout the major prophets, and it's that the people of God were given a very simple mission to be the hope and light of who God was on the earth, and they had failed royally at being culture influencers and instead found themselves influenced by the cultures that were around them. And so there's this rhythm that happens throughout all five of these major prophets, these books that were written by these men of God that were declaring the truth of why the people were in the situations that were, they were in, the truth of the God that they serve and the consequences for turning their back on him, but also the truth that God has always made a way of escape. The undercurrent of every one of these stories is that our God does not stay at a distance. Our God is a God that does not do distance. That God, regardless of how corrupt and broken and overwhelmed the people became and the consequences of the decisions that they made, God would not stand far off, but he would re interject himself into the people of God, he would over-pursue their pursuit of the things around them. They, they could not outrun the heart of God for them. And, and that's the rhythm that we see throughout this original gangster series is that every one of these major prophets are simply letting us understand again and again and again something actually that the Apostle Paul wrote for us very beautifully, very clearly in Romans 8, 38. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any power, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. If you hear one thing this morning, hear that. God does not do distance. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And in the book of Ezekiel, what we're going to see is that this book is laced with so many dramatic pictures of God's pursuit of the people. 
For one, I love some of the stories that we pull from the book of Ezekiel, the famous Valley of Dry Bones. How many Bible readers in the house are familiar with Ezekiel 37? How beautiful that picture that there's nothing too dead, too brittle, too washed up, too dried out where the breath of God cannot restore what's been lost. Come on, that's an amen moment. If you're new to church, that's when you say amen. Okay, so that, that, like that is an amazing story. I love that. And I also love that, that God would have Ezekiel do things like model for the people some of the things that were gonna be happening to them if they did not repent and turn back to him. Like in Ezekiel 4, there's this crazy moment where God has Ezekiel lay on his side for for 400 days and cook his food with animal dung to represent the weight of the people was going to crush them and put them in a place of having to eat unclean food. And so here is Ezekiel, the mouthpiece of God for the people of God, laying on his side, cooking food with animal poop. And he's saying, this is what God's saying. I mean, that's a wild, would you not, that's like, that's like a, you can see God has like a flair for the dramatic a little bit. Like there, he would have Ezekiel build like little 3D models of the town and then act out what was going to happen to them. Like with little figurines and little mountains and little hills. And this is what's going to, can you imagine walking by this man, laying on his side, stirring his food that he's cooking with animal crap as he's building a 3D model saying, beware, the Lord is coming. That's crazy to me. Like, it, it, it's a mind blow. But here's the thing. I think it's not just because God wanted Ezekiel to have a dose of humility. I think it's God is telling us through the book of Ezekiel, there's nothing that he will not do to tell us how we should live. There's nothing that he won't do to demonstrate for us that if we turn from the things that are stealing away what he has for us, that he will be faithful to restore us. Yes, the book of Ezekiel is a book of truth and alignment and judgment. But the book, the book of Ezekiel is also a book of mercy an unprecedented grace and a picture of the pursuit of God that is so majestic and so no holds barred that it is heartwarming to reflect that this is just a verbal picture of what Jesus was gonna do for us. The, the rhythm of these five major prophets of God doesn't do distance. There's nothing that can separate us it's not just so that we can see like, wow, God meant business, although we've got to understand that. But we have to know that his grace is so powerful because of the clarity of his power. Our God draws near to us. He, per, he pursues us. He gives us hope and life and grace, even in the middle of us wasting away what he's given us. Can you just pray with me? God, I'm asking that this truth, this simple truth this morning, that you're a God that pursues us regardless of the traps that we find ourselves stuck in, that you're with us, 
you're for us, you're not against us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd get me out of the way, that the truth from the word of God, this powerful book of Ezekiel that so lines out your glory and your holiness and your righteousness and your grace and your mercy, Lord, let us hear it and, and respond to it together and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, everyone shouted. You know, growing up, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. I don't know about your grandparents' house, but my nanny and papa's house was like a place of wonder. Like there was a whole freezer in the garage that was dedicated just to bluebell ice cream. Like if you could imagine it, you could find it at Nanny and Papa's house. Whole cabinets filled with the foods that we were not allowed to eat. That my grandmother very deceptively would hide from our parents until they left and then just say, you can have whatever you want because I love you. And you were like, I love you too, Nanny. Man, there was something about Nanny and Papa's house where you could just create the most wild experience. It was a place where dreams could come true. And yes, there was also an open heaven of stupidity over my Nanny and Papa's house because it was at my Nanny and Papa's house where we invented many games left unsupervised and doped up on sugar that you probably shouldn't play, like dodgeball with darts. That was a fantastic game until the darts began to find our legs and wedge themselves into our shins so deeply that I think we got bone damage. Don't do that, but that's what sugar will do to you, okay? It was a place where we created just the most wild ramps to try to jump over ditches, but we weren't satisfied with just trying to ride our bikes off ramps. We said, you know what would be a fantastic idea? We're at Nanny and Papa's house. Anything is possible. Let's douse it with lighter fluid and diesel fuel. Let's set it on fire, and then let's jump it. We really did this. This is true. I don't have to lie about how dumb I was as a child. These things really happened. Ask my mother. This is also the place in my nanny and papa's house where I got to, for the first time, I got to lay my hands on a treadmill. Now, this was, I was young. I was a boy, so I did not yet know that a treadmill was basically the equivalent of living in captivity like the people were in the book of Ezekiel. Like you're working hard, you're running, you're sweating, but, but you're going nowhere. You're looking at a wall. Uh, this was before I understood that treadmills actually, in some weird way, although you're running, somehow it doesn't transfer to then running outside. Like you can run like 10 miles on a treadmill and then not be able to make it around your block. Like I don't understand why these things are still made, but I didn't know that yet. All I knew is that you could make it go fast. That's all I cared about as a little boy in the land of wonder at Nanny and Papa's house is that you could crank that thing up and that belt would be moving so quick it would start to whistle and we would take turns trying to run on it and being shot off the back like bullets out of a gun and laughing our heads off hysterically and it was a blast until my younger brother got scorpioned do you guys know what scorpioned is it's when you fall so hard forward that your face hits the ground and the velocity of the impact causes your feet 
to come all the way around and touch the ground in front of your head. He does not practice yoga. This was an involuntary, absolutely hilarious moment as he scorpioned on the treadmill, got shot back with his face on the belt, stuck between the treadmill and the wall, and it tore him up. (laughs) Treadmills can be really fun when you're on them just for a minute. But treadmills get very discouraging when you're on them for a long time. I think it's important that you understand that when you are working hard and running and not taking ground, you will be discouraged. And I think this is how most of us feel in life. It's not for lack of effort or hope or, or, or trying you're, you're given everything that you have and you're in one place and you're pouring sweat and you're exhausted and you can't go any further, but you're right where you started. And, and this is the feeling, this feeling is the feeling the people had, the people of God had when Ezekiel was speaking to them. Like they were stuck It didn't matter how hard they ran. It didn't matter how hard they pushed. It didn't matter how hard they prayed. They had been defeated. They had turned their back on the very thing that they were called to be and do. And therefore, they found themselves enslaved to a group of people that were subjecting them to things that were outside of God's perfect plan for them. Now, it's important that we understand, and and forgive me for a minute, we're going to go back for two verses into Isaiah to understand very clearly that God had a plan for the people of Israel and it was very simple. That plan was to reveal and to declare who God was to the people of the world. That was why they existed. God carved out a people on the earth to bless, to give them access to him so that everyone around them would see the God that they serve and then in turn, turn to him. It says this in Isaiah 49 verse 6, I will make you, Israel, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60, verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, Israel, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. This was who they were called to be. They were called to be a people that influenced the culture around them. To draw the culture around them to the light that was in them because of the God that they served controlling and living and leading them in all that they did. But we see that similar to the pattern that that we have seen throughout this entire series, instead of the people of God influencing the nations around them with the glory of God, instead of being a picture of hope and life that's found a relationship with the living God, they surrendered to being influenced by the cultures that were around them. 
They squandered their influence and they found themselves in a trap that we all understand very, very well. It's that trap of letting culture determine how we should live, act, and think, what we should value, what we should hope in, what's right and wrong, what's truth and fiction, instead of the God who had created them. We understand this tension that they're in. And where their sin had taken them, this is pivotal to understand about captivity. Where their sin had taken them, they could not get themselves out. There was nothing that they could do that would be able to remove them from the treadmill that they found themselves on. It didn't matter how fast they were running. They were stuck in the consequences of the decisions that they had made But just like we had said that the book of Ezekiel is not just this radical declaration of truth and righteousness and the holiness of God, right in the middle of it is sandwiched the beginning glimmers of that God is a God that doesn't do distance. And it doesn't matter what we're stuck in, he makes a way of escape for us regardless of even how or why we found ourselves in the circumstances that we're in. Because in Ezekiel 11, verse 19, it says this, I will. Can you just say that with me? I will. Can you say it like you mean it? I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. Say it again. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I want you to listen to it now. I will, this is God speaking to the people. I will give them an undivided heart. I'll put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I want to lean into the I will character of God this morning. I Will, this statement speaks to an aspect of the heart of God that is quite honestly mind-bending. That, that our God is a God of I will. When you encounter the bigness of God, the power of God, the truth of his holiness, his, his unapproachability, his righteousness, his purity that's unmeasurable, the, the idea of things needing to shift in us becomes very, very clear. This is why when you really encounter Jesus in a powerful way, no one has to tell you that you need to repent, meaning turn from the sin that is in you and start pursuing the righteousness that God has for you. Because when you encounter all of who he is and his beauty and his majesty, no one has to tell you that you're not those things. It becomes radically clear when you encounter who God is in a powerful way. You become very aware of what needs to be cleaned out in you, what needs to shift inside of you, the areas in your life that have fallen short. And hear me, it's important that we understand that we must draw near to God. You will hear me say this over and over again. We are a lean in people. We lean in 
to the heart of God. We are a forward momentum into the desires of who God is. We understand that Jesus says, knock and the door will be open to you. We understand that Jesus declared that we are to reap what we sow, that it's important that we are people that lean in to what God has for us and who he is and allow that to shape how we live. But understand the undercurrent of the Bible and the undercurrent of the gospel is that Jesus leaned into us. Jesus leaned in to us. This doesn't discredit that we must lean into him. But hear me, if we overemphasize what we can do to get to him, we'll miss that he did everything to get to us. God is a God of I will. There's so many moments in the Bible that remind us again and again that God comes to us. Obviously, the hallmark story of Jesus coming to earth, becoming flesh, living amongst us, being one of us to save us. Unbelievable. God comes to us. God doesn't do Distance And Jesus, while he was on the earth, told story after story after story that would reveal his character, that he's a God that doesn't do distance, like the famous prodigal son story, excuse me, where there was a young ruler, Jesus said, that was his father was extremely wealthy, and he went to his father and said, I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance. I want to be my own man and do my own thing. And so his father gave him all of his inheritance at that point, sent him on his way. His son went to Vegas, spent everything on prostitutes and gambling, squandered everything that he had, found himself working in the pig stalls, trying to make a living, scrapping, understanding that he's now a servant. He's wasted everything that he's been given. And he has the thought, it says very powerfully, he came to himself. Is anybody thankful that you had a I came to myself moment? It says that he came to himself. And in that moment, he said, even the servants in my dad's house eat better and are better taken care of than this. I'm gonna go back to my dad's house and I'm not gonna ask to be a son. I'm gonna asked to just be a servant and it says that Jesus tells the story of the father that is sitting on his front porch and sees the son walking down the road rehearsing the speech that he's going to give thinking he's going to get scalded and it says that what the father ran to him because we serve a God that comes we serve a God that I will I, we serve an I will God I will restore you. I will heal you. I will give you a heart of flesh where you feel like you have a heart of stone. We serve a God that initiates and pursues us. Jesus tells another story that is called the, the, the lost sheep where it tells a story of a shepherd who leaves his entire flock of 99 sheep, leaves them and says, look, I, I lost one, so I'm just gonna leave you sheep to fend for yourself and it spares no expense to go and find the one that was lost and then celebrates when it's found. We serve a God that pursues us. We serve a God that, that leans in to us. We serve a God that comes to us, a God that does not do distance, a God that will renew your spirit and remove from us that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. 
This becomes very clear when we begin to understand that he will restore us because we can't restore ourselves. He will because we can not. He will because we can't. Proverbs 5.22 says, The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them, trap them, and the cords of their sin hold them. So many of us are trying so hard to break free. We're, we're trying so hard to beat the sin that is in our lives, that have, that's ensnared us, that, that's holding us, that, that won't let go of us. The anger that we hate about ourselves, the greed, the jealousy, the lust. And we try so hard to be a better person, to be nicer, to be kinder, to be more generous. And, and the things that we wake up in the morning absolutely despising, they don't go away. No matter how hard we try, no matter how fast we run, we are still on a treadmill. Because he is a God that will, because we are a people that cannot. We can't. You're not strong enough to get yourself out of the sin you're in. You're not better just because you're a nice person, you're still broken, trapped, and ensnared. You have to understand that dead people have to be rescued. That dead people cannot help themselves. That's why even in the book of Ezekiel, like I mentioned at the beginning of our talk this morning, there's this story of the valley of dry bones. I love that God takes Ezekiel to this valley, shows him nothing but death and, and absolute just horrible circumstances. And he looks at him and he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's response to God in this moment was, you only know Because he could see these people cannot live on their own. The, the, the pile of bones can do nothing apart from, them, apart from God breathing on them. Like they, they have no hope alone. They've got no strength alone. They've got no structure alone. And so he had to look at God and say, I don't know, you know. There's no strength for these people to try to live. Like only you know. And God does what God does. And it begins to show him that he's the God that will, that he's the God that will restore. And he's the God that will take their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And he starts to breathe on this stuff that looks dead. And what happens is life comes into dead things and makes them alive. And that's what the gospel has done for us. The gospel did not come into you to make you better. The gospel came into you to make you alive. And you are only alive if you believe in Jesus and your strength is only his strength. If you're trying to will your way to be better, will your way to act better, will your way to be better, will your way to stop sinning, will your way to start becoming more Christ-like, you will find yourself like the people of Israel who in their own strength fell short because dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't help themselves. It's the God who leans into us in the midst of our brokenness and pursues us and begins to heal us so that we can be restored into all that he has for us. There's this moment where Jesus has with his disciples 
after the Last Supper, as he looks at this disciple that was famously, arrogantly, loud-mouthed and wild, named Peter. I love Peter. Because he lived with Jesus day in, day out. He was the first that understood that Jesus was who he says he was. And because of the revelation that he had in his heart, Jesus looks at Peter, actually changes his name to Peter. His name was Simon, looks at him and says, on this rock, I'm going to change your name to Peter, which means rock. I'm going to build my church. Like there's going to be amazing things that are going to come on the back end of this revelation that you've received. And, and, and he, in the middle of walking and living and seeing Jesus and how he responded to people continually, right up into the end, kept responding completely contrary to how Jesus acted lived and preached like when the guards came to get Jesus Peter jumped up and started fighting these guys pulled out a knife cut out a dude's ear and Jesus had to like heal the guy's ear which I'm sure that was wild for the guard who was coming to be like okay maybe now I believe so I'm gonna get on the other side of this train I'm with these guys but the truth is is that Peter even in the middle of living and being and breathing with Jesus on a daily basis was still working out this wrestle within him of what does it mean for me to live in Christ and die to myself Jesus brings this real close to him because he looks at him and he says Peter you're gonna deny me three times Peter looks at him, he's like, no, 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 not me. I'm the rock. Didn't you see me cut that dude's ear off? I'm willing to do anything for you. All these other jokers, yeah, they probably will. They're weak, but I'm strong. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm proud of you. I got revelation that you are who you say that you are. You're going to do what you said you're going to do. You are the Messiah that we've been waiting for. For all of this time, Peter looks at him and he says, there is no way that I'm going to deny you. And Jesus says, you will. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times. Jesus gets taken away. Peter is separated from everybody, finds himself alone and he's asked do you know Jesus some say it was like a middle school girl do you know do you know this man Jesus aren't you one of his disciples Peter's like I have no idea what you're talking about I don't know him no you've got me mistaken I've got a doppelganger, looks just like me, same beard, happens all the time. I wish I was one of his guys, but I'm not. Doppelganger is somebody that looks like you, if you don't know what that is. Peter's heartbroken because he did the very thing he couldn't even imagine doing. Like how in the world this man that is known as being a rock and strong and like has strength enough in him where God himself believes that the church that is to come is going to be built on the revelation that he received how could this man deny Jesus I think we find it in his response when Jesus is telling him you're going to deny me he says this that very night you will all fall away on account of me 
I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead to Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Can you see here? He is trusting in his strength. I never will. And Jesus says, the very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And right on the back end of realizing that he's not as strong as he thought that he was, after Jesus' amazing, beautiful death on the cross that made a way for all of humanity to enter into the throne room of grace with confidence in his miraculous resurrection from the dead, Jesus goes and finds Peter. Peter sees that it's Jesus, jumps out of the boat that he was in fishing, swims to shore. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's like, yes, I love you. He's like, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. I love you. He asked him a third time, you love me? Here's what Jesus was making known to Peter. The only strength that he needed to experience the way of escape that he found himself in was love for Jesus. Jesus was not overly concerned with what he did or didn't do, who he was and who he wasn't. Jesus was making it clear that I've made a way of escape for everybody. I've made a way of escape from you to turn from all the exile, all the bad decisions, all the things that are separating you from God. I'm the God that will restore, renew, heal, put back together what's broken. And the only thing you need to do to access the God that will is simply just love him. That's all Jesus wanted Peter to understand. Do you love me? Is your heart for me. This is how you access the way of escape. This is how you access the way of hope. This is how you access the way of truth. It's not about you being strong. It's not about you having willpower and strength. It's not about any of that. It's about your simple devotion to the God that comes to you when you're stuck on a treadmill in exile, looping, scorpioning over your head, getting ripped up by the patterns that you hate. It is the God who comes to you and fights for you, you need only to be still because we serve a God that will. Come on, church, that's an amen moment. We serve a God that will. He's a God that will heal you. He's a God that will provide for you. He's a God that will restore you. It doesn't matter how deep in the hole you feel like you are right now. Some of you are so tired of trying to get right and act right. You're so tired of the sin patterns that you're disgusted with the way that you talk to your kids. You're disgusted with the decisions that you make. You're disgusted with the facts of your financial life. You're disgusted with so much of what the hole that you've got yourself in. And Jesus is looking at you this morning saying, I will will restore you. I will give you a heart of, of flesh instead of a heart of stone. It's because we serve a God that pursues us regardless of the traps that ensnare us. Yes, we have to lean in, but we lean in because he leaned in. First John, it says, or maybe it's third John in one of the Johns, that we love 
because God loved us. Everything that we do, everything we hope in, everything we believe for hinges on the fact that God came to us. This is the story that God is telling throughout all of the major prophets is that he doesn't do distance. Regardless of how trapped, ensnared, enslaved we find ourselves to be, God does not do distance. He makes a way of escape for you. So listen to me. Right now, Jesus has a way out for you. Right now, Jesus has a way out for you. Some of you feel stuck on that treadmill. Right now, there is a way of escape for you. There was a way of escape for you before you found yourself ensnared in the things that you're ensnared in right now. There is nothing, there's no temptation, the Bible says, that you can't stand up underneath. You know what else that means? That also means there's nothing you're in that the gospel cannot take up off of you. But there's there's nothing that's too dark. There's nothing that's too broken. There's no heart that feels too cold. Where the God who pursues us can't restore us because we serve a God that will. Why don't you stand to your feet?